0: It's true, but I think it took on mythical proportions at Southwest in response to a letter that Herb received when he was CEO. So a frequent flyer sends him a letter, says, I was on the flight, the flight attendant was joking through the safety announcements. There's a reason why they're supposed to read them that way, it's, this is a life and death thing. I insist that you reprimand the flight attendant or I'm never flying you again. And the, the legend of Herb was, he wrote back a three-word response, we'll miss you. <laughs> That's a great story, right? But think about that story going through the ranks of employees, he's got our back. Fun loving attitude is a core value at Southwest. It, it's in core, by definition is the essence, the innermost of who you are. Right. So to go against those core values and to, to not support the flight attendant to get that paying customer would have created this, you know, you're not walking the talk attitude towards leadership. You say these are, this is important, you say that we're important, but it's only important as long as we have the customers, even if they're rude or even if they're are criticizing. So from that perspective, I think that is, you know, that's really to me what it means to put employees first.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today this show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it would mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I'm really excited to have Jeff Lamb with me today, who is the president and COO of Very. Today's episode is fantastic. If you have listened to the Pete Chambers episode before, you'll love this one. We talk a lot about leadership and more specifically servant leadership, we talk about his experiences working under some of the best CEOs of our generation, folks like T. Boone Pickens, Roger Staubach, Gary Kelly of Southwest Airlines. We talk about Southwest Airlines and their culture, one that's unique and one that has thrived through multiple decades in a, in a very tough industry. We talk about kind of the world he lives in and how he thinks about mentoring young people and how he thinks about leading them and what works and what doesn't. Uh, Jeff's just a very thoughtful person, and I took a ton from this episode and was so grateful to have him. So, thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me. Can we just get a maybe kick it off with a little bit of your story, kind of growing up and uh, kind of what brought you to where you are today?
0: You bet so born and raised in emerald texas up in the panhandle uh, so yeah kind of just a average uh, middle-class uh, family growing up uh, father was an attorney uh, a home mom a couple of uh, siblings and a um, uh, good good uh, upbringing uh, very close to my uh, dad's mother my grandmother uh, she lived close by and was a big part of the family a big influence on me she was a uh, Gosh, one of the early, early, uh, single working women, uh, she, her, uh, husband, my uh, grandfather passed away when my dad was six. So that would have been 1935. Wow. And so she raised uh, a young boy in, you know, post depression, yeah. uh, kind of on her own. And so it was a very strong woman, uh, very humble servant leader. And, uh, so, um, met my wife in uh, high school. She didn't like me in high school. <laughs> like, oh, we all high school sweethearts? I'm like, no. And, uh, but we, you know, good, good fortune to uh, get in a racquetball class in college with her. And uh, through fate, we ended up as doubles partners and uh, kind of got to know each other through that. And it ended with a kind of championship. Uh, Match against her brother and another partner, and uh, so it was hard fought. You know, brother and sister duking it out for the for the class championship. And uh, I sent her some flowers after it and told her she played great. And I didn't hear from her for about three months, and so I thought it was no chance there. But eventually, uh, we connected and and started dating, and and pretty quickly uh, realized that uh, we were a match and. Start talking about what are you going to do in five years or 10 years and uh, dated in, uh, in February, engaged in October, married in, in uh, May. And so pretty, pretty fast, 19 and 20. And uh, asked Chris, you know, he's had a good, good fortune of going to work for what I consider the best company in Amarillo, Mesa Petroleum. Yep. Small company, you know, a thousand employees. Uh, Boone Pickens knew everybody. One of the great kind of leadership lessons from him is he knew everybody's name from the evening custodian to the you know executive vice presidents and he really gave me some great career advice we we would play racquetball once or twice a week and he wanted to um you know kind of guide my career a little bit invest in young people as he did and said what are you gonna what do you plan on doing and my dad was a lawyer and I, I love my high school coaches. And so I was going to either be a lawyer or a coach. Mm-hmm. I said, Well, I'm going to school to, at night to get my secondary ed degree and uh, I'm going to coach. And he said, well, well, Jeff, you know, I was going to coach too. And I said, Really? I said, Yeah, I graduated from Oklahoma State, Oklahoma A&M at the time. And I accepted a, a head basketball uh, coaching job at a small high school. And, uh, was almost, almost there when, when Phyllis Trullian called and I ended up going to work for them. He said, you can coach in corporate America. It's the same thing. It's, it's game plans, it's recruiting, it's team building, and you can provide better for your family. And that really kept me engaged at Mesa, what ended up to be a wonderful 12 year run. Oh, wow. Uh, they, they moved, uh, my wife Kim and I to Dallas in, 91. Uh, I commuted for a couple of years, but we moved here full-time in 91. Moved my three girls, our three girls here, uh, when they were two, four, and six. And, uh, actually I did a little stint in Fort Worth. Okay. Yeah. But the, uh, I think I'd been there 11 years and I, I went in and, and told Boone, I said, you know, you've been so good to me and my family. I don't want you to hear about this on the street, but I've been doing the same thing for the last five years and really want to start looking for something different. And he said, kind of young man, the, the future is in compressed natural gas vehicles. And we had started a little company called Mesa Environmental okay. over on Bolt Street. If you yeah. Know it <laughs> yeah, it was great, though. I mean, it was great. So he sent me over there to kind of run that for the you know, be the corporate uh, leader uh, for that subsidiary. And uh, it didn't work out. Uh, it actually it, it did in the long run in that Mesa Environmental became Clean Fuels Inc. OK, they they pivoted to distribution of okay. uh, compressed natural gas. I got a chance to jog all over South Fort Worth and see some some really great places around the Colonial and yeah and uh, TCU and that area. But um, left there in ninety three. Okay, and um, been very fortunate just to maintain a career here in Dallas and a lot of different industries since then. Yep. What did you do at Mesa again? Well, a lot of the things I've done my whole career, really, it's uh, best described, describe it, I, g- I guess, is uh, G&A work. Yeah. So, uh, I think when I was 25, I, I became the head of HR and administration. Okay. And that included everything from um, the aviation department to the corporate real estate function, security, uh, risk management, those kind of things, but yeah. kind of the all other guy in the yeah. company. Yeah. That's, that's been what I've done most of my career.
1: Is that Was that because it was just like a natural fit there or had you applied for certain jobs within the company and that's where you landed? Like, how did that become the spot or did T-Boone kind of spot talent and say, this is where you'll be great? Uh, no, I'd
0: I love to be able to say yes to <laughs> <laughs> that question. But no, you know, I started out working contract for them. I was 18 years old. Uh, I was actually, ironically, uh, for my job today, building office cubicles. Okay. And uh, I guess I did a good job at night, you know, whoever was watching me. And so they hired me to a full-time job uh, filing in the parking garage basement. And the promotion opportunity was to work in the mailroom. And it was great because it was (laughs) air-conditioned. So I worked in, in the mailroom, uh, kind of general uh, handyman facilities, mailroom person uh, through college. And and that department was in under HR administration. So it's kind of a natural um, progression, if you will. And had a, a new president and COO came in. And I think maybe he saw something there, again, invested in young people. And uh, really, really funny at age... 25, he asked me to, to run the department. And the former uh, department head had 28 years of experience in HR. And I said, Well, you know, Paul, I'm, I'm flattered and I'd love to do it, but I'm a little nervous. I, you know, and my, my predecessor has got 28 years of experience, and I only have 25 years of life. <laughs> it's no experience. <laughs> And he says something very profound uh, i always remember he, he said no he doesn't have 28 years of experience he's got two years of experience and 26 years of repetition and uh, we'll we'll get through this and and that was his uh operation uh, for me really throughout my career with him uh, it was every year to give me something new to learn yeah so that I was constantly gaining new experiences and that's what led me to everything from treasury to Finance to technology to corporate real estate, et cetera, and um, so it was. It was a great foundation, but I think I was kind of known for HR. Right. So I took an HR job at below back at a time when the uh, uh, news and and media uh, business had had changed with the 1994 Telecommunications Act, so that companies could own multiple properties uh, in the same market. Mm-hmm and um so huge acquisition binge uh, from 93 uh, to 2000 while I was at Belo we we tripled in size from 3000 to 9000 wow uh, employees i think from 5 tv stations to 35 and one newspaper to six or something like that but it just wasn't mm-hmm. big enough the industry was consolidating and right. and uh, we didn't we didn't change fast enough and grow fast enough to really be one of the survivors yep but uh, that that led to a great opportunity to, to take what I learned there as kind of a, the head of administration. So again, real estate, security, technology, supply chain, and um, apply that trade at Staubach. Yep. So I had a chance to go go meet Roger and work for him.
1: And we'll get to that and then Southwest and where you're at now, but there's one other thing I wanted to chat about before we get to what you're doing currently at Barry. but you kind of said servant leadership. Um, which I know is a big part of, of your world. It's how you know I met you actually because of Pete Chambers and, and his kind of way of thinking. What does that mean to you, and uh, how has it kind of been a big part of who you are and how you've you know worked in the business world?
0: Well, so that's a, that's a question that we could talk about for a long time. Yeah. I'm very passionate about it. You know, I would say that servant leadership for me really didn't begin in earnest until it, it had some, uh, some transformational aspects in my faith life. So as I, as I became more involved in discipleship and really studying the teachings of Jesus and the way he led, uh, began to influence the way I led at work and, uh, and I heard, you know, in the nineties, I would hear stories about Southwest airlines and the great culture that happy people make happy customers, make happy shareholders. And I really kind of begin to characterize companies as those that got it, that people matter most. It's it's not our people are most important asset, but customers are number one. But it takes the owners and the shareholders to pay the bills. You can't all three be most important. At some point, there's going to be a tie. Yeah. And you have to pick one and uh, I saw a lot of companies, a lot of organizations that wanted to be people-centric or servant leadership based. But I realized it was more than just a philosophy. It was really a business model. Yeah. It was how it, it was the way that they drove decisions. It's the way that they those organizations engaged employees. And it made a difference. It made a difference when all organizations can as Pat Lynch, only would say, can be smart. They can have great strategy and technology and finances, but the the companies that really differentiate themselves are healthy. And that health comes from uh, believing in people and putting your people first. And so uh, I, I admit that when I went to Staubach in 2000, I really hadn't codified what servant leadership meant to me. Hearing Roger talk about Jeff, take care of your people and the financial results will follow and seeing him you know, whip out a personal credit card when an employee had a tragedy, uh, seeing the way decisions were made and and seeing the business results follow really inspired me to believe in that business model of servant leadership. Yes, it's the right thing to do. It's the right way to treat people. But it's also the right thing for an organization and for a company. I had the good fortune, uh, how old would I have been then, kind of pushing 40 now, uh, That to have a friend who offered up coaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've heard this saying, if you're a lawyer, don't represent yourself and if you're a doctor, don't treat yourself. Well, if you've been in HR most of your career, don't give yourself career advice. right? So Catherine Bach was my coach, and she really helped me understand what my calling was in life. Yeah. And it it came down to, I thought, a very uh, strategic way to approach it, but it was like, what would you do for free? Kind of a question from Bob Buford's halftime book. What would you do for free? What gives you the most satisfaction? And if you could put that into a 30-second commercial, what would it be? much harder than it sounds to do. But my 30 second commercial was I want to coach and develop servant leadership in organizations that believe in servant leadership as a business model, like Southwest airlines does. Now I never dreamed I would work for Southwest airlines at the time. They didn't hire off the street leaders. And, but I just, that was my, that was my goal. That was my calling. And, um, communicated that to Roger and he was very supportive and, uh, think the the opportunity to take that business model and elevate it at, at Southwest Airlines and be able to influence more people was uh, a goal of mine. It was uh, it was what I felt led to do. So that's really kind of how the the story uh, got started in terms of servant leadership at, there at Staubach and then through a, uh, series of events. I ended up meeting a, a, a servant leader from Southwest Airlines at a class I was taking at Dallas Theological Seminary, and we hit it off, and he had happened to be recently placed over leadership development, and he asked me, what what do you want to do in life? You know, What are you looking for? And I said, I want to coach and develop servant leadership. He said, wow, I'm just building a team, and he introduced me to Colleen Barrett, the, the president, and kind of the Next twelve years was history. At that point, I I fell in love with the company and the Southwest family, and uh, had a a great opportunity not to. I wouldn't say uh, significantly change or enhance what they were doing. The coattails were already well established, established. but the uh, the foundation or the you know the ingredients were there to really take servant leadership to the next level. Yep.
1: Was that something that the the foundation at Southwest had been really set by Herb Keller, the founder, or was that kind of
0: folks that arrived after or both? Yeah, it's a good good question because I I got there, there were 35,000 employees. Okay. When I left, there were 60. Yep. Uh, I want to say we were probably in, I came on right as, as Herb stepped down, so 2004, Gary Kelly became the CEO, Yep, and that's when I, I joined uh, Southwest, and there's no doubt that Herb and Colleen's fingerprints are all over that organization yep. d- deeply. I, I do have to credit uh, Ann Rhodes, who's one of the early chief people officers at Southwest, and I, I, I just saw too many times in my 12 years there uh, kind of a lasting impression that she made on things. Right. So I give her a lot of credit, even though I've never met her, yeah. as kind of being the, the person to go execute what Colleen and Herb had, had said as a, a culture of, of love, of being yourself. And it's a very powerful emotion. And they, they get that. I mean, it, it's, it's a, um, you know, the, the concept that they're written about in the Harvard Business Reviews, things like hire for attitude, train for skill what they understood is that people were motivated more by love than by money or by something else. And it was, again, a great business model. Just put your people first, care about them, hire kind people, let them be themselves. Uh, And, uh, the results are, are pretty staggering. How many times Southwest has outperformed entire S and P 500, right. You know, with, with a very simple business model. And so what was your role at Southwest? So started out in in HR, okay. uh, And uh, added some additional responsibilities, other departments, supply chain, um, technology, uh, ended up with uh, the real estate functions as well, facilities and and airport affairs. Uh, So, most of the departments that were not operations, airport operations or commercial. Right. So I, the title was EVP of Corporate Services. Mm-hmm. What I was kind of the last five or six years. OK, and
1: then so you get there. So before I ask the next question, though, how for somebody who hasn't heard of the term servant leadership, what is that actually? I know it's kind of baked into
0: the actual name, but what what is a servant leader? <laughs> yeah, so I'm laughing because uh, I had a chance to work with Pat Lencioni, the author. I, I, I met him through a book at, uh, that we were f- the five dysfunctions of a team. Right When I was at Stallback and reached out to him at, at Southwest, because I kept hearing phrases that implied that the people at Southwest had read his book. We want to have more conflict, more debate. We, we want to hold people accountable. Uh, we're, we're, we're too nice. We want to have, we trust, we love each other. Which are the principles of in his book, and he's recently written a book called The Motive, and in it, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit. But in it, he, he says, "Do we can we just quit calling it servant leadership? Isn't all leadership servant leadership?" Mm-hmm. But he talks about the motivation for being a leader isn't some kind of glory or ambition, but it, it, it's really that you want to care for the people that you're leading. It's the reverse pyramid, right? effect. And, and the way I would describe servant leadership is, is that you, you want to, you know who doesn't want to work for a leader that has their best interest ahead of their own. Right. And and if you lead that way, your employees respond uh, very well to it. It, it. it goes, goes along with a quote I like from Teddy Roosevelt, that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Yeah. And that to me is really servant leadership. It's letting your employees know that you care. And through that, then they respect what you know and respond to, you know, the company goals. Yep. Okay. So um,
1: from Southwest, I kind of want to dive in a little bit what you're doing today. So when did you leave Southwest, and did you already have a next plan, or did you take some
0: time off, or tell me about that transition to Vary? Yeah. So I left uh, Southwest in the summer of 2017. Okay, after uh, 12 and a half years, and. It was really one of those things where it's very hard to do. You know, it's, uh, There's a lot of inertia to keep keep you at a company like Southwest. Uh, it was hard to leave Staubach, too. And mm-hmm. just asked my wife. She, was, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, and actually, as a side note, I think that's something that I uh, think is very important for organizations is involve the family.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, when when we would go, my wife and I would go to a, a Staubach event or to a Southwest event or I had to stay late for an event. It wasn't a work event it was a family event and there was there was never any uh, negativity towards me working late or or being involved and can, you know she would ask, can I go you know are, are spouses coming or family coming? is it something we can all attend and but it also has the the, the opposite effect when you're leaving of almost like a divorce yeah and so it's very it was very hard and but I had at the time I had eight different departments, And there's a point for me, which, which my, my, I call it career anchor, but it's the job satisfier is challenge. And once you've taken on a number of uh, departments, if there's not other departments that make sense or other responsibilities for you to have, then you kind of end up going back in and micromanaging what you already have to be challenged. And, And I had eight, you know, seven, eight very talented leaders. I think a number of them have been promoted. Uh, since i left and i didn't want to be the blocker you know i I was very invested in the talent development at southwest and and so there was an opportunity i I had met somebody that was uh, looking to hire a successor for a ceo uh, was serving as uh, an advisory board member uh, for them and it gave me a, a great graceful exit at that time to go in and and Learn this other business and see if it didn't work out to to run. But my plan, if you will, if I had a plan, it would be in my fourth quarter of life to really apply what I'd learned over my first thirty five years to try to create the best of companies. Yep. Take all the best practices from you know T Boone and Southwest Airlines and Colleen Barrett and Gary Kelly and Bob Jordan and the people that I worked with there and. Uh, and Roger Staubach, and and some way to put that all together. And I really thought it was probably going to be a private company. Yeah, uh, very few public companies can take that people centric approach. Uh, they're so driven by, you know, quarterly analyst calls and and earnings per share. So I was really looking for a private company. Uh, the The place I left for didn't work out, mm-hmm. uh, but pretty quickly I was introduced to Jason McCann. And uh, he was trying to build the best stuff. He had a he had a hot product. He had a hot company, fastest growing private company in Dallas, Fort Worth in 2016. Uh, He had just won Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year National Award, and he was going after it. He was going to he was going to try to have the everyday value of a Walmart and the culture of a Southwest Airlines, the great customer experience you might get with the Zappos and but also go direct to the business like a Tesla Mm -hmm. and all the other furniture manufacturers out there uh, would go through dealers. And he was looking to build a team and uh, we met, hit it off. And, uh, you know, I was really felt like at this stage of my career, the opportunity to help a a small company, a private company grow was was what I needed to do and what I was built to do and and trained to do. And and I asked him if he was Ever thought about hiring somebody to help him help him grow like that? And and uh, he said, "You bet." You, do you know anybody? <laughs> I said, "Well, how about me?" And he's like, "Really?" Yeah. You know, and <laughs> and uh, so met met his uh, co founder uh, Dan uh, the next day, and we hit it off, and it's been a been a great uh, partnership since then. So that was three and a half years ago.
1: So you joined them. And when you join them, did they already have a servant leadership kind of mentality or had they just identified like this is what we want and now we're going to build out a team that can do it? I guess maybe the question's more like, can you go into something that's already kind of headed down this path? And then how do you make your mark to kind of uh,
0: give the company what you've been trained to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that question, Chris, because I think it, it really is important that the leader at the top believes philosophically in putting their people first. Yep. And and you can you know you can see it in their actions. Uh, you know Southwest was famous for not letting people go after 9/11 mm-hmm. when all the other airlines did. Throughout COVID last year, we didn't have any job reduction, we didn't cut any pay, we didn't cut any benefits. Uh, they were you know, it was a financial hit to the organization. But that's putting your people first, right. people above profit, if you will. So knowing the the two co-founders and a couple of their early hires, uh, Craig Story, the CFO, and, and Sean Scroggins, who was the chief marketing, chief revenue officer now, uh, I knew philosophically that we were aligned. They may not have talked about servant leadership as a goal, but that's how they were operating. And it was apparent. But they did want to basically it wasn't to sell furniture it was to elevate culture right it was to elevate people it was to use workspace to create the collaboration and the teamwork and the transparency that allowed for leaders to be known to the employees and vice versa that was very appealing and the silver lining in all this is is that or you might think, well, gosh, at Southwest Airlines, it's such a big ocean of, uh, you know, a, a sandbox of servant leadership and very at 300 employees, not 60,000 employees. It seems like a much smaller, but we get companies through our offices every day and we get to talk about elevating people and elevating culture and helping really unlimited organizations uh, take, take what we've learned from the people that we've hired and and our customers and apply those best practices so that they can then improve the cultures in their organizations
1: right so so when you landed what what were you tasked with like what what did you show up day one thinking <laughs> this is my
0: goal uh, we i think we went through a list and where do you need help and here's some things i can help with and yeah uh, it I couldn't even tell you what to pick up a responsibility for a few departments and and yeah. kind of be th- that chief operating officer that they hadn't had. But because, you know, if you know a small organization, especially entrepreneurial, uh, it's it's a very matrix, very flat organization. Yep. And we work great as a team and it's, it really is what needs to be done. Yep. And so if there's an assignment who's best equipped to lead it, to, to work on it. And pretty quickly, uh, we ended up doing a proof of concept uh, building in Las Colinas, bought the O'Zales headquarters uh, there at 114 and Walnut Hill. As so I've spent a lot of my time uh, really on renovating large campuses, uh, the Vera Space concept, uh, which for us is, is really proving out to building owners and asset owners that there's a different way to renovate and build buildings to lease space without. Throwing a bunch of sheetrock and ceiling tiles in the landfill every three or five years, right? And uh, and that's worked great, and that's helped us uh, really gain credibility with our, a key customer base of ours as we push into the workspace solutions business.
1: What are what's workspace solutions? Just full office soup to nuts, that's right? Yeah, yeah. So,
0: so we've I think we're up to probably two thousand installations where we basically have gone in and outfitted an entire office. Yeah, that's generally for small and medium sized companies, uh, fast growing organizations, uh, or building owners that are looking to create spec suites or flex suites uh, to move in ready uh, space. And yeah, so it started out as a desk on a desk, the, 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 the converter, the, yeah. the, the Vera desk. And we grew from that to the mountable walls, uh, electric standing desk, chairs, soft seating, sofas. Uh, chairs, cafe tables, etc. So we have the full line of furniture. So we compete with the Steelcase, Herman Miller, uh, Hans of the world uh, for the office furniture business. And
1: okay. So the office has been a hot topic, let's say the last 18 months um, from, from the insights that you see, if I was to say like, how has this industry progressed going forward and maybe how is COVID uh changed both positively maybe now like what what are we heading into what are y'all thinking uh is the future
0: of office from your perspective it's a loaded question <laughs> i think it's the question that everybody's trying to figure out mm-hmm. and i don't think there's a, a known answer to that today but the one one thing i do believe with all my heart is that flexibility was important before covid Yep. flexibility is more important post-covid yep and, and we're seeing that in everything. Now just from a an office environment, a culture environment, you know, the the notion of, of flexibility in terms of your work-life balance, uh, where you work from anywhere. I think that's true for everybody. I, I want work-life balance, I want flexibility. Young people want flexibility. Right. Uh, that I don't think that necessarily was Substantially accelerated during COVID. I think that's just that's just true. It's 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 almost a ante to get in the game for employers today is you need to be flexible. But the the configuration within office buildings, the flexibility there has has been elevated significantly. So you might want to densify an office to reduce your cost. Well, do you need to spread people out? Well, what if we want to redensify that that ebb and flow of business uh, just in terms of static business has drastically increased. But from a, a company standpoint, if you're growing, you know, you need the ability to add quickly and that's, you know, we're in stock and that's kind of a key differentiator for us as a company. So we don't, we don't have to pay, companies don't have to pay extra to get our product quick shift in twelve weeks. Right. And that that flexibility to be able to move quickly, uh, add 15 workstations because we added a new team or we're adding a new office, uh, is really, I think that's here to stay. I think successful companies need to be fast and mm-hmm. they need partners that can go alongside of them. So I think that's that's here to stay. Flexibility has certainly been uh, accelerated and, and increased in importance in organizations. Uh, for me though, I, I, I go back to business is really a team sport. Mm-hmm. It's like the ultimate team sport. And you can do things on your own that help the team, but you really need to practice together and that, and you play the games together. And, and that's what, that's what meetings are. That's what collaboration is. And, and so I think that, that. We'll see uh, the pendulum swing back. I've, I've been around long enough where I've had people, departments work from home and come back and work from home and come back over the years. And there's no magic answer to it. But the I think the key is, is that if, if you believe you're better together, if you believe in teamwork and your business needs that teamwork, then you've got to figure out ways to get people in person. Right. Uh, the other uh, piece of that is, do you, do you want to build a family culture in your organization? And I, I don't know anybody that would think it's wise to build a family relationship and never see anybody. Right. You wouldn't. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't tell your family, "Hey, look, kids, we're only gonna we're only gonna zoom from now on," and you can be a, you can be a daughter from anywhere. And you, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't do that.
1: <laughs> so the types of tenants that you are signing these are anywhere from maybe a local business to a Fortune 500 company all different sizes or is it all across the board or is it a specific kind of
0: target market of tenant no we we're not picky we're, yeah what's <laughs> but it is interesting to see the the kind of quality of tenants that we've attracted at our two buildings here in dallas fort worth yeah i guess it's a small piece of our business it's really not our focus our, yeah it, it's a, it's the supplement to our our workspace solutions business right but yeah, we've been very fortunate in that uh, having move-in ready space is very high value for a large organization like a Verizon or a Microsoft that, that needs space right now, and they need it for two years or three years, and they don't wanna go sign a 10-year deal and, and, have, and spend all the time designing the space and picking out the furniture. And, and we've, we've created a class A hospitality uh, work workspace, again, elevating the culture of the building. And so it is, uh, attractive to those kind of organizations, but, um, far and wide, the, the, the most uh, common tenant for Verispace has been those headquarters companies, those, those offices that are, that have the, they, they want the, the headquarters to look like a Verispace, but they're not big enough to have a building like ours. Right. Uh, on their own, they couldn't have a 10,000-square-foot fitness center, but being a tenant in Space, where they can get their own signage and they can have the community manager greet people when they come in and have best-in-class food service and a high-end craft coffee bar uh, is attractive to those. And so we've we've had a good fortune to to land, gosh, I guess it's now seven uh, tenants where the, they're the it's the headquarters location for, for them.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, no, I'm I'm on your uh your side. I think people need to be around people, but obviously the flexibility is is critical. I mean, we've been back in the office for a long time and I think it's I don't know, it's kind of one of our competitive advantages uh right now. Still a lot of my friends are running fully remote and uh it's hard to keep the culture intact as long periods of time go by if nobody's seeing each other.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have that challenge <coughs> with distributed workforces anyway. Yep. You know, uh, Southwest had a significant portion of its workforce that didn't go to an office and never, never has gone to an office. And so, but you can adapt and you can, there are certain things you can do to enhance culture, whether you're working in an office or remotely. I I don't, I'm not anti-remote work in that standpoint, but I think that one of the, the things that has been lost is that the people will say, companies will say, well, our employees are productive at home how did they become productive so you hire them you onboard them you inculcate them into your culture you develop them to the point that they're productive and then they go home and work and yes they're very productive at home right it's that second generation of workers working remotely that becomes a little trickier yep how do you how do you inculcate them yep and how do you help them become productive right and allow them that kind of flexibility Hence, the hybrid model was born, right? And I think that was a a realistic swing back from the we're never coming back to the office, you can work remote forever. Uh, And a little cynical in that you have to watch uh, exactly who's promoting what, because there are some organizations that benefit tremendously from 100% remote. Yeah, and, and, You can't help it if you if you have a conflict of interest if you benefit from it. Yeah, uh, just like we have a conflict of interest for people being back in the office. Yeah, we 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 think the energy of the space is very important. Yeah, and uh, not a lot of uh, we we sell a lot of uh, desks for people's homes, but not near as many as we sell for the office, and so we have a conflict as well. But I think it's it's somewhere in the middle. There is is the the truth.
1: Yep. All right, you've had the opportunity to work for. World-class CEOs, um, kind of your whole career. Can we just talk a little bit about what maybe traits and characteristics have led to their success from your perspective? I know everybody's different, so maybe a little bit of insight, and then we can maybe go through a few of the specific people them,
0: themselves. Well, there are some. There are some commonalities, and I, I think one of the things that would I would say would be common of successful leaders, and especially high-profile. CEOs, most of which were founders or entrepreneurs, they understood that clarity, focus, execution is gonna win the day. Right, And they, they tended to have three things or five things or four things that were important. And they focused on those. They didn't try to focus on 300. Uh, I like to say more, more companies tended to <coughs> dive into digestion than starvation. Right, trying to do too much as opposed to too little. And when you're when you're leading a large organization, having that that clarity is super important. Yeah, and just reinforcing that clarity over and over again. So you know, I think um, try to remember Boone's. Uh, I think his were you know come early, stay late, work hard, stay physically fit, and you don't have to cheat to win. Yeah, those were his things. Right? when you get to, um, uh, Gary Kelly, he, he was about teamwork and communication. And, and, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't remember Roger really had a, he had a constitution that, that had six or seven values, but they were basically operating principles, right? And, and that was, that was the rule book for us. And we followed that. And so I think that was a, you know, to me, that was a real key of seeing leaders. uh, You know, I, I would add that. There are certain characteristics, uh, you might call them leadership attributes or competencies that successful leaders tend to have. Uh, Jim Collins, I'm not a huge fan Jim Collins. He's probably, I don't know if he list, is he a listener? He might be. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, there's a lot of Jim Collins out there. so Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, he did, yeah, I think he did get it right. He had some great research yep. from Stanford. He did get it right uh, when he was uh, doing a study on good to great and comparing the best to the second best, not to the pack. Yep. You know, it was a, a, a nuance in his book and they were surprised to learn this notion of humility in the le- what they call the level five leader. Level four leaders fiercely competitive, but level five leaders were fiercely competitive and humble. Right. And I think there, that that humility really kind of stood out. And to me, and I, I, actually, I'll give you a little, uh, uh, over the decades leadership, uh, survey. So when, when the, when I was working for Boone in the eighties survey was done. So what, what makes a great leader? So they looked at everything, birth order, height, college, everything. And the only commonality they could find in what they considered at the time, the best leaders was they all had a great vocabulary, which is interesting, right? Interesting. Yeah. Why? Because they were w- well-read. They were voracious consumers of, at the time, newspapers and magazines. Yep. So you fast forward, you get you get Collins' work, level five leader humility, uh, And then you go forward, and there was a there was a a, a similar uh, search for the, you know, the the uh, top competency that a that a, a leader or CEO could have, and actually compared Herb Keller in, the, in this survey and, and they, they found that learning curiosity was the number one thing they all had in common. And you realize they're all connected, right? So I'm, I'm reading cause I'm interested cause I don't know it all. I want to learn more. Yep. I'm humble because I don't think I know it all. Yep. I know I've got a lot to learn. I'm curious because I, I know there's stuff out there that I don't know. And I want to learn about it. I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. So that, that emotional intelligence of, I don't know everything, I'm, I want to learn, I'm humble. That to me was a common characteristic for all the, the great leaders and, and it's in and Jason McCann today, it, it stands out as well he's he uh, has incredibly high EQ in terms of always wanting to learn, voracious reader, voracious consumer of podcasts and other information. Uh, always looking for best practices or finding a better way. So th- that characteristic, I think, is one that's been true throughout all the leaders I've worked for. And were all of those
1: leaders, um, because they're like that and because a lot of them are servant leaderships, like are they, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to ask the question, were they very involved with all of the people or did they work with their kind of close team or were they kind of accessible Um Like how, how were they at these large organizations? Like when I think of Gary Kelly and pulling the magazine out of the back, he's like always with everybody. (laughs) And I'm always like, how does he have time to be, always be with everybody? I know some of that's a little bit of marketing, but how were they with like these huge organizations?
0: Yeah. uh, Great leaders make time. Right. And I think somebody gave the equation, the simple equation that time equals love. So if you want to show love to your employees, you need to be available to them. And they do. Invest great leaders invest a tremendous amount of time with the people. Certain scale, you just can't, you just can't do it. You know, I, I probably had 10,000 employees at Southwest and I wanted to know every one of them and, and I, I just couldn't do that. Right. It was just too hard. But I think the, what I, what I say is, is that the, the team is critically important. So, if you think of, if you've got kids, you think about what's the best thing you can do for your kids is have a healthy marriage. Right. So, if the, if the leadership is, is strong and the, the marriage of the leadership team is, is healthy, that's the best thing you can do for your employees. Yep. If you turn it around, if I, if I were to go to a, a staff meeting, maybe that I was leading and I was openly critical of my teammates or of our, of Jason or our CEO, think about how you would, Receive that information as an employee working with me. Uh, and you think, well, that's, gosh, that's not good. <laughs> My boss doesn't get along with his boss. Right? Yeah. Uh, so it's it's crit- So they great leaders do that. They make sure the team is tight. Yep. Uh, but I read a book recently. Um, I don't know if I shared this with you and when we met before, but it there's a statement in there that people follow availability more than they follow vision, and it's really resonated with me. It's just kind of disturbed me almost i've been thinking about it so much go a little deeper in that what does that mean well it's great it's great i've been thinking about that what does that mean yeah and, and people follow availability more than they follow vision and i think what it means is is that you can have a great vision yep but is that the reason why people will follow you as a leader and i I have to go back over my career and think about um, times when people have followed me. Right when I've I've rehired somebody that I used to work with, and I I recently over uh, my time at Barry, I reached back out to a great leader that I'd worked with in the nineties, Diane. She left a great job that paid more money to come to work for me and for Barry for a for kind of a new position that wasn't even super well defined. And I thought was she, it wasn't because I had some great vision in the 90s for leading the department. Right. It's because as her leader back then, I was available to her. I, I knew her and her husband Jean, and the kids. And and I think that's I think she followed because of that, not because of the vision. And I think that's that's true on that micro scale, but it's also true on the macro scale. That if if you are available to your teams, if and throughout COVID, Jason was on weekly all hands calls video, every employee in the company, almost daily emails, I think, communicating, uh, during 2008, 2009, during that, that recession, Gary Kelly got on a plane and went to a hundred locations, spend time in the break rooms with the frontline workers. They're available. And I think that's, to me, that's a, a real key point. When you, when you think about leading an organization, a big organization, it, people don't expect you to know every name or to, to be at every event, but they want they want to know that you're available yeah. to them.
1: That had a big impact on me, you just saying that. I think that's something that I know I've struggled with in a world, and the company's smaller and you're growing and you've got emails and meetings and calls, and sometimes like that thought of like an extra couple hours to be available or kind of not walk the halls, but I think you know what I'm talking about is um, it can sometimes get overwhelming, but I asked you that because I've always felt this pull to be more available, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it's just being young. But the thought of like, well, no, I got to be in meetings and working, and da 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 da. Um, yeah, that was kind of the answer I was hoping that you would
0: give. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it, it's a blessing and a curse when you get to dwell on that that statement because. Uh, a friend of mine is an author, John Gordon. He's yep. re- he's written some books, the the energy bus and the no complaining rule. Uh, he's a great guy. And he has this word of the year thing he does where it's like pick a word. It's it's hard for us to remember three things, even when they rhyme. Yeah, <laughs> But pick pick a word. And so I've really tried to do that the last four or five years. Right. Pick one thing to kind of focus on for a year. Yep. See see what happens. Right. So one year was humility. And I learned a lot about humility in that year. Uh, So after I read that statement, my 2021 word of the year is availability. So I put it on the post-it notes on my monitor. Uh, I try to think about it every day. But what that means is when somebody asks you to come to a podcast, you're available. When somebody wants to come have coffee, talk about their careers, you're available. Yeah. When somebody is trying to sell you something and you would normally say, thanks, but no, thanks. You take the call, you're available. Yep. And it's truly blessed me this year. I can't tell you how many times when I probably would have said I'm unavailable, but just carving out some time, uh, you can always stretch. It's not that I'm not making huge sacrifices to do it. Right. And, uh, the benefits are tremendous because you're, you're being available to people and whether you, you have an immediate benefit or not? You're making connections. You're spending time with people. You're pouring into people.
1: Okay, I learn something new every day. I guess my last question, just to follow up on that, is it something that you like tell your team I'm available, or is it done through actions? Because um, if you can, if you build that reputation that you're not available. I think it can, if you didn't tell everybody, I'm available now, it can sometimes maybe come off as like, (laughs) well, what's the, what's the catch? How does your team know that you're available through actions or have you vocally told people if you need me, come, but you also don't have that revolving door of people just with a line out, just waiting to come in and get time with you.
0: Big part of leadership is being available. Uh, I've always felt like I've had an open door policy and in my 30s I had some feedback from an employee one time and I and I said, you know, I asked him for feedback and they said, well, I just don't feel like you're available. And I said, what do you mean? I'm, I've never turned down a, a meeting request. My door is always open. You can always come in. And they said, yeah, but, but when I'm here, you're looking at your phone, you're looking at the computer. I don't feel like you're present. And so park, park that thought. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it was a real simple fix. Get up find a table, sit across the table, leave your phone. And back when we actually had phones and they rang back in the nineties, but leave your computer. So then I go to Southwest and Southwest open door policy. I'm available. I would give my cell phone number to the new hire class of 500 people or to every leadership class. I was available to people to call me anytime, never turn down an appointment. Somebody wants to meet, whether it's an intern or uh, an executive. But to get to to get to me, you had to schedule through an assistant. You had to go to the executive floor. You had to go through two or three locked doors to find my door open. Right. At very, I'm on the main hallway. I don't have a door. I've got a no door policy. Right. But I tell you all three of those because even if I don't have a door, and even if I'm on the main hallway, if somebody comes up and I and I give them the impression that I'm too busy to stop and talk then I'm still not available so you have to be present and not just in the room I will
1: say when we walked uh very space that day uh now that I'm just like rehashing that day you were very available to even the few people that were in the building that we talked to yeah it's something that I've struggled with a bunch here and that's uh that's a that's a big I have I think I'm available when I wanted to be available, and I've been very closed off when I'm busy. But even that spot of what you said is, sometimes I am available, but maybe I don't give off the, the right juju or vibe yeah. that I'm available. Um,
0: yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not to say that you shouldn't have rituals that allow you downtime. Right. That's. I'm not saying 100% available. Uh, you know, there's a, a fascinating article long time ago, Harvard Business Review, called The Making of a Corporate Athlete.
1: hmm
0: And really think about people in business, leading teams or being a leader in business, you don't truly have an off-season. Right. Now, some people have gotten in, in the ritual of taking off two or three, four weeks at a, at a time. Right. Probably really good habit to get into if you can afford to do that. Yep. Not everybody can afford to do that. Yeah. Or, or wants to do it. My family just doesn't do long vacations. Yeah. Right? <laughs> So you, you absolutely need to have that quiet time, the, the focus time. Uh, so it's it's when you're when you're in the office, when you have office hours or whatever it is, that you take the time, spend with the person when they need it. When you and, and we've kind of talked about Southwest already,
1: um, but if you were if, just to maybe wrap up that conversation we were having earlier,
0: what are your biggest takeaways from your time at Southwest? You don't think I've ever had that question before. I I, I would say it's probably uh, similar to other departures at other organizations, and that it's the it's the people. You don't go back and and think about projects too much. It's you know how is so and so doing and right and uh, you know the the moments of of fond memories are really the. The, the people that have been successful or achieved well or have reached their full potential and that's when you've kind of been in, in my line of work uh, for so long that's the ultimate goal is helping people reach their full potential right and in a big organization like southwest airlines you, there's a lot of room for people to grow and reach their full potential a um, little harder sometimes in smaller organizations that's why I'm, i love the fact that we're growing because growth allows for opportunities for people to reach their full potential. Right. But there's, that's, you know, no question that that's the number one takeaway is that, you know, they, they led with love and understood the, the power of love. And, and you can look at, at video clips from coaches after a Super Bowl win or World, World Series championship, and you just hear that word coming out of the player's mouth, the coach's mouth. We love each other. It's a great team. Love these guys, love these ladies, you know, and that's what winning teams do is again, business is the ultimate team sport. Uh, you get a, um, uh, get spend a lot of time with people and, and that's a, uh, a you know, has a big impact on you. If you love each other, if you don't like each other, uh, then it's not going to be a very pleasant experience and so i think that that was the uniqueness they they you know southwest harness the power of love
1: yep is there a reason why people don't reach their i mean there's probably lots of reasons but if it was why do generally speaking in companies people not reach their full potential
0: bad leadership no you know i think it's i think it's just there's not a There's not a lot of great resources to help guide people in their careers. You know, people have been doing it kind of the same way forever. Right. You know, if, if I have someone who's in quote in transition that wants to come talk, you know, they probably will send me their resume and say, keep your eyes and ears open. It's kind of like, that's the way they've been doing it for 40 years. You know, it's like, what, what drives your satisfaction? Right if you can find something that drives your satisfaction, your performances are going to follow. It's yeah. really hard to have, you know, high satisfaction and low, you know, low performance or vice versa. And they hadn't really thought about it. And when I talk about, well, what's the most important thing to driving your satisfaction, how important is your immediate leader? How important is are the values of the organization? It wasn't on their list. It was industry, company size, title, pay, commute, and that's all wrong. And, and there's just not a good resource. I was, I was talking to a recent MBA graduate the other day, and the counseling that he was getting from the school was all about how much money he could make and, and the name brand of the companies so that the school could tout starting salaries post-MBA or X. And here are the list of the companies that they've gone to work for no correlation to happiness satisfaction which would ultimately drive performance and if you're highly satisfied and performing great your career is probably going to allow you the opportunity to reach your full potential
1: right all right um kind of moving into maybe more just kind of your personal life and things that you're doing now in your your world but i know that kind of mentoring younger folks is kind of a big part of how you're going to spend the the later chapters in your life. Not that we're near the end. There's still plenty of chapters to go. Hey, I heard
0: the other day that hundreds the new 60.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's changing quick. Somebody told me the other day that my generation, I might live to be like 150 years old. And it's was like, wow, it's the hundreds, the new 60. I'm like 20% through my life. then. <laughs> um, Johnny's like 10% through his life. No, I'm kidding. Um, what if what have you enjoyed most about mentoring young people? What, what, um, how do you think about
0: it? I got some great advice at one point, Chris, that was, you know, stay, stay close, network with people that are 10, 15 years younger and 10, 15 years older. Okay. And so that's allowed me to be mentored, uh, but also be reverse mentored, learn, learn from young people. And I think it's, allowed me to to go into a company that's predominantly much younger mm-hmm. I think we're like 70 percent 35 and under or thereabouts and be relatable be relevant and so I, I enjoy learning from young people uh, or younger people mm-hmm. and I, I think there's probably a, uh, there. I think the effectiveness of the mentoring and reverse mentoring probably wanes a little bit the further away you get right uh, you know I, I've it, it's it's harder for me today to be an effective advisor or, or mentor for someone that's 20, 25 years you know thirty years younger right uh, than than I am I'm just a little too far removed from that stage of life yep uh, but yeah, it's it's been been a blessing throughout my career to to uh, carve out time I I, I try to block seven thirty to eight thirty every morning for that kind of availability yep um, you know it's uh, uh, it's produced wonderful relationships and, and friends over the years. Yeah. I started, uh, trying a few things that I might want to do full-time in retirement back, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago. And, uh, some of them didn't work out. You know, I, I taught an MBA class for a couple of years and I enjoyed it, but I thought, now I can't see myself doing this full-time, but I started gardening and it stuck. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, which is kind of weird. Yeah. little community garden at, at our church and, our class kind of got together and started a garden and, and before long a year or two down the road, you know, people kind of stopped, stopped coming. And I kept going and, and I just loved it. My my wife actually became a a garden widow. She, where have you been? You've been (laughs) at the garden again. Come here. Let me smell you. You smell like mulch. You've been out there. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just stopped by on the way home, you know? And, uh, but the, the garden became this great opportunity to mentor and network. Yeah. And both, both ways. Somebody wanted to talk about a career, uh, somebody was dealing with something. Hey, are you available Saturday morning? Can you, you know, help me pull weeds? And they would come out and they might teach me something about tomatoes or something. So, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the, um, relationships that come through. I, I'd call it networking. You know, I have a little bit of a, of a challenge with mentoring and coaching people that I don't see play. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I just don't think that's, you, I can advise, we can talk life or we can make suggestions, but you know, if you're going to coach somebody, you've got to watch them play. Right. And you know, going back to remote work, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's really hard to coach if you don't ever see them in action. Yeah. You just hear about the game or, you know, say, how did, you know, how, how did you play last night? You know, yeah. let me, why don't you work on this? It just doesn't work. Right. So I, I think that, what most people would call mentoring, I would call, you know, counseling or advising, and uh, it's not truly mentoring. Th- that your your mentors need to be people that see you in action, that see you play. So, would that be in in your case? Maybe if you were a true
1: mentor, somebody working at Barry or somebody, maybe in your family that you see regularly. Like, how would you define who would be a good mentee of yours right now? Somebody working at Barry.
0: Oh, yeah. There's a, um, I think the people that I actually see, I've had, you know, conversation today with someone who seeks out feedback from me and they don't work directly for me, but we work together. I have the opportunity to observe them playing, observe them working. Uh, I think there's, there's also uh, young people that, that approach me about having a conversation about just how did you maneuver this in corporate life, right? What happens when you don't get a promotion or, or how, how do you balance your faith in the, in a secular workplace? Or, uh, you know, how, how patient should I be about the next step? Or what can I do to, to gain additional experience? And I get, I get those questions a lot. I really enjoy that. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that people feel like I'm approachable enough to come, come ask. Uh, I do have uh, three son-in-laws, and and so you've been asked about outside of work as well. And it's they've been they've been a real joy. I, I like to say I got my my boys uh, grown and housebroken and scratch golfers. You <laughs> know, so they they've been great, and and uh, we they're interested in leadership. They're, they've got companies or responsible jobs, and and so we'll have those kind of. Chats, you know, and and again, I don't, I don't get to see all of them play much right. in terms of their work experience, but uh, it's it's a it's a very good father-in-law son-in-law relationship that allows us to meet me to learn from them, and and maybe uh, they learn a little something from me.
1: Okay, well, while while we're on that topic, what is uh, maybe some words of wisdom to other folks that might have daughters that are about to get married? What's what's the <laughs> recipe to be a good father-in-law?
0: <laughs> you know, it's the the second time in the last twelve months I've had that question. Okay. And it's the only two times I've ever been asked that question. Yep. Was uh, one of them Pete? One of them was Pete. Yeah. Asked what is what does it take to be a, a good father-in-law? You know, I uh, I think the um uh the whole discussion on availability is a great one. Yep. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like when you're when you're available and you get asked a question, uh then it's it's advice right if you offer advice without being asked it's meddling and that's a new nu- nuance but it's really <laughs> a critical a critical one <laughs> uh yeah you know, i think just being humble you know yeah. i think i actually apologized to my first grant my first uh, son-in-law <laughs> for uh uh you know after he saw this you know the second and the third one get welcomed into the family i'm sure he was thinking well hey <laughs> you know <laughs> But <laughs> why did you treat me the way you did? <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I didn't know. It's the first time I've ever had a son-in-law, and uh, so you just humble enough to to uh, to know that you don't. It's a new role, uh, so uh, you know, just love. Uh, don't don't judge. You know, it's, I don't know if it's, it's true because I've only had we've only had uh, uh, daughters, but it's hard to think that anybody's good enough to m- marry your son or daughter, right? Uh, and so the, the concept of loving, but not judging, I think is, is, uh, has helped me a lot just to stay grounded in what's really important.
1: Yep. Well,
0: this is a selfish
1: question. I have two daughters, four and two. You have three daughters that have all gone on to be married. Can you just speak to like raising them and things that worked and things that you learned along the way? And the, the, the question is, you know, what can I do? to have a raise good kids
0: yeah of course, i don't i don't know that it really is applicable today it, it, when i was raising mine in the in the 80s mm-hmm. workaholism was a thing and you know I, I bought into the myth that it's not the the quantity of time that you spend it's the quality of time and that sounds good doesn't it? it's you know I, and i get it you don't if you go home and you sit in lazy boy and watch tv it's not even though you're at home, you're not, it's not really quality time, right? So I, so I understand the concept, but as any parent, I think would tell you today that the, those quality moments come out of the quantity time. And for me, it was a slap in the face, uh, when my middle daughter Lauren was, uh, in kindergarten and I was, I was working all I knew when Boone was an incredible hard worker. So I was at Mesa, Long, you know, fifty-hour or sixty-hour weeks were were commonplace. Uh, I was actually in Fort Worth uh, at the time, so long, long commute for me, but forty-five-minute commute. And she was having donuts for dad's day in kindergarten, studying the letter D. And I was like, I don't have time for this. You know, I, it's going to put me behind traffic and all the other dads are going to be there. And so I really need to go and maybe it'll be fast. And and I go in and uh, Lauren's kindergarten class, the teacher had given all the students a sheet of paper where she had written, see my dad and had a blank left it for them to fill in the blank and draw a picture. And I'm walking past dads and daughters that, you know, see my dad play with me, see my dad play catch, play with the dog, you know, do, do fun stuff. And I get to my daughter's picture and it see my dad work as me behind a desk with a couple of bookcases. And as they say, you know, through the mouths of babes, <laughs> the mm-hmm. truth. And I said, well, Lauren, you, you know, you see me do other things. And she, no, daddy, all, all I see you do is work. And so that, that to me was the mistake the you know, the, the lesson learned. And I, I knew that I needed to find a job that allowed for me to actually plan and take a vacation to be home more than I was. And, and I was very grateful for that, uh, that lesson, um, wish I would had it much earlier, Yeah, but that's what I, I would say. You know, it's just the quantity time, uh, you know, it's through those, uh, the, those, you know, getting to the soccer field an hour early or the carpool or the family vacations that the, the, uh, quality moments come. Did you
1: have to be intentional about blocking off time to be home or leaving early or planning that trip or, you know, you just kind of bought into the system and you just found yourself being there? Do you have to kind of put it on your calendar?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's one of those things that over, over time, you can work to, Be more in control of your situation. So the the more physically responsible you are, the the, you have the ability to take jobs that allow you to spend more time at home early on. I just I really feel like like parents today in order to get the quantity of time, uh, they they have to be incredibly intentional about date night with the spouse and and, uh, you know, no, no phone after eight o'clock or put the kids to bed and read for an hour. And it actually just kind of comes out of their day, so it's probably less sleep. Yeah. Uh, but then, if you if you're intentional about trying to create more and more of that that capacity, th- then over time you can you can influence it through the choices you make. You know, I like think there was one point when I was working downtown, and the the Staubach opportunity was in Addison, and it was much closer to all the soccer fields that we were routinely going to. I couldn't make a six o'clock game uh, if I'd been still working downtown, but mm-hmm. moving north and getting closer, you know, and that's, that's a, a privilege that I had at that point in my career, being able to take a job that allowed me to do that. All right. You said earlier, you said, um, in order to raise good
1: kids, you have the best thing you could do is have a good marriage. Uh, young, younger folks that have young kids and they're working hard and they're trying to build their career. Um, do you have any kind of words of wisdom on how to keep a, a good marriage, um, especially in those early years with kids and, and everything else?
0: You know, we're very fortunate. We, we Kim and I've been married 38 years. Yep, And we got married young. And we, of course, we didn't think we were young at the time. It's like, what, well, we're almost 20. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and so we, I think a lot of it was luck. I think a lot of it was, uh, you know, good, good parental influence, especially with my father-in-law and, and uh, kind of help gently guide our early marriage and, and, uh, and uh, you know, strong relationship within the church and yeah. as well as was, I think it's critical to, um, uh, to that. But it's interesting because my wife asked a similar question um, a few years ago about the, the younger you, what advice would you give the younger you? And for me, the thing that came was having a, a, a group of men uh, that I became very close to kind of, we called it an accountability group, but it's really just a small group and we meet every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. I have for 25 plus years. Wow. And, um, uh, I said, I would have started that earlier. And, and my wife said, we, you were 32 or something. I'm like, yeah, but I was already married, had three kids. You know, it, it would have been great to have had that pre kids or even pre marriage, uh, to have that, that group. But yeah, we, we, we met this morning and and uh, uh, it's, you know, having people that, you know, I think the cliche is doing life with and whatever, but it's just that really knows you. And I think for men, it's it's much harder than for women. Right. You know, I I think we probably spent the first year or two talking about football and the weather. And uh, before we really got into meaningful topics, um, we stayed focused on books because that kind of helped us uh, be disciplined, whereas you know, for a lot of the, the women I know, and my wife included, I think she could, she can have a very deep discussion with the person checking her out at the grocery store mm-hmm. you know, that she just met. So it's, uh, I think for men in particular, which is what I would speak to is that, you know, if you can have other men in your life, uh, that, that really truly knows you and there's some level of accountability that that's to me a real key in, in terms of, of a the long successful marriage. Yep.
1: All right. Final four. Do you have a childhood experience that you kind of remember vividly that might've shaped who you are today? Could be like a single moment or maybe something that was going on in your childhood. And I usually ask it just because I've done, you know, 160 of these episodes, what I started finding was in a lot of answers to things a lot of who they were resorted to kind of something going on early on. So is there anything that kind of comes to mind early in
0: life? I've never had that question asked, so it's, it's something I, I need to think about. But off the top of my head, there are a couple of things that I remember surprising me uh, and even just now as you asked the question that they, they came to mind. And and I, th- I think uh, one of them is just being acknowledged as a leader. I never viewed myself as a leader. Mm-hmm. I didn't uh, You know who, who knows that in the fifth grade or the ninth grade, what that means right? it's like a leader and having an adult call me out as a leader, being someone that was of influence to, to my peers, my classmates. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I didn't think of myself that way. And I'm, I'm not sure what kind of influence that had on me, but for whatever reason, I, I've embraced that and just said, okay, I'm maybe people naturally are, are drawn to following me and what is it that makes a good leader? And so that's really been my, my life's work has been trying to, sharpen my skills of of leadership. Right. So I think that would be one. I think the other one uh is just a, a in, ingrained early a work ethic. You know, I heard somebody say one time that that hard work doesn't guarantee success, but they've never met a successful person that didn't work hard. And I I would agree with that. I think that, you know, I I'm average student, average school, uh you know, and and to whatever uh, success I've had in a career, I think a whole lot of it is I can attribute to working hard. Right. Yeah. You know, I used to, I used to joke. You know, the you, you, you get a certain point in your career, you get a lot of vacation, a lot of PTO. And I mentioned earlier, we don't we don't take a lot of vacation. Right. It's not that we don't like it. It's just that we're busy and kids, and we'll we'll, we'll take a week uh, or so every summer, and that seems to to be great. And so I would have four or five, six weeks of vacation, but I would only take one or two. And so I would kind of leave three or four weeks of vacation on the table. And I got to thinking about it over the years. I thought, you know, I'm I'm working an extra month more than a lot of my peers are working. Right. Now, I'm not very fast, but I, if I can't outrun somebody in, you know, with an extra month, uh, I'm re- I really am slow. Yeah. Right? And I think that's really been uh, key for me is, is that, you know, If you work hard, uh, you can really overcome
1: a lot. Is there something that you believe in that a lot of people around you don't believe in? That wasn't on the list. Yeah, it was. (laughs) We can go to the next one. I didn't
0: read read, read that, Johnny. (laughs) Is there something I believe in that others don't?
1: Yeah, that just maybe, not necessarily your peers, but that the world doesn't believe in
0: that you believe in. Well I think I don't know what the percentage is, but i I would say probably ninety five percent of organizations when it really comes down to it, are you gonna are you gonna back your employee or are you gonna tell the employee to to suck it up? We need that customer we need the revenue yeah I, I mean i I think it's it's more popular today because of some of the success of some of the companies we've talked about, right. But, but, I think that's that's what I've seen is that there's very few organizations that are going to say, "You know what? We're going to take a financial hit. Yeah. we're not we're not terminating employees. And when you don't terminate anybody,
1: um, and uh, the answer is obviously, people are more drawn, but it, it just creates a lot less fear in the organization, much more belief in the leadership and much more like belonging. like, how do you kind of define what not
0: letting anybody go means? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because I thought it would have uh, created a, a tremendous amount of loyalty. Well, if you've if you can leave and get a find another job easily in two weeks, then that fear of long term unemployment or not having a paycheck or losing your benefits isn't out there. So there's a there's kind of a generation that has been had pretty good employment their entire careers right and so i don't know that that necessarily that one example would do it i'll give you a a better example okay kind of it's it's true but i think it took on mythical proportions at southwest in response to a letter that herb received when he was ceo so a, a frequent flyer sends him a letter says i was on the flight the flight attendant was joking through the safety announcements that there, there's a reason why they're supposed to read them that way. That is, this is a life and death thing. I insist that you reprimand the flight attendant or I'm never flying you again. And the, the legend of Herb was he wrote back a three word response. We'll miss you. <laughs> right. That's a great, that's a great story. Right. But think about that story going through the ranks of employees. He's got her back. Yeah. You know, fun, loving attitude was a core value at Southwest is a core value at southwest it, it's in core by definition is the essence the innermost of who you are right so to go against those core values and to to not support the flight attendant to get that paying customer would have would have created this you know you're not walking the talk attitude towards leadership you say these are this is important and you say that we're important But it's only important as long as we have the customers, even if they're rude or even if they are criticizing. So so from that, that perspective, I think that is, you know, that's really to me what it means to put employees first. Yep. When when there's a tie, when there's a tie between a a customer and the employee, you know, you've got a you've got a customer that's rude, that's that's yelling, that's cussing out an employee and you, you ask them to stop, to please not do that, and they continue to do it. What do you do? Do you actually fire the customer? Because I've had to do that in the past. And the, I'm, the, the impact that that will have on employee morale and employee engagement is phenomenal.
1: I'm, I'm just learning as we go. I'm, some of this is for me. It's for the audience,
0: but it's for me too. <laughs> um, do you have a morning routine? I, I do, uh, you know, it depends on the the day of the week, mm-hmm. uh, but I do have a morning routine. I, I'm a pretty routine person, okay. uh, very streaky. So, same barber for 30 years. Every other Thursday morning, 6:45 a.m. as an example. I love it. Yeah, my men's group, 6 a.m. every Tuesday. Yeah. Right. And so there's some things that I, that I do. My wife's a, a early bird. She gets up at 4:45, 5 o'clock, and so we have kind of a you know, that, uh, coffee time early on in the mornings. And, but yeah, it's for me, the, the, um, uh, the eight 30, nine o'clock start, I get a good couple of hours in the morning. And again, uh, most mornings I've got something, I've got a seven 7.00, o'clock, seven 15 breakfast or coffee or chat. And that's my, that's kind of my time that, that I can commit to my calendar. That's not taken away from the company, if you will. And it right. allows me to, to get in and get, have, have that uh, be, be available to whoever wants to meet early and and uh, also get some things done before the day starts.
1: I feel like I'm going to be going around for the next few weeks. I'm so like, I'm available. That's that, <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah. Um, all right. What is uh, the best advice you've been given? You've worked for, again, phenomenal leaders. You've put a, a lifetime into becoming a better leader. Uh, for those that are kind of younger coming up, what what advice would you give them on
0: becoming a good leader? Yeah, you know, I think the I, I was trying to put those thoughts together for, for a different purpose the, the other day, and um, I'd read some, somewhere where we're really not a, a product of one mentor, that we're really a, a compilation of, of things that we've. Gotten from a lot of different people, and that certainly is true for me. I think I've learned different pieces of advice, or taken pieces of advice from lots and lots of different people. Uh, but I, I think that the uh, some of the things we've talked about that are are a- absolutely essential to to leading would have to be there. So it's it's are you are you approachable? Do uh, do you, do you uh, spend the time to let people know that? you care about them before you start trying to tell them what you know. Um, you know, are, are you available? Do you have time? Time equals love. So are you uh, scheduling time and using your time wisely uh, to do that? Uh, you know, um, you know, boons I, I mentioned, you know, work hard, you know. Uh, I think that's, you know, come early, stay late. You know, that's a, that's that b- might be uh, discouraged today, but but it's it's true in a lot of ways, and I, I'll I'll just give give a, an example. There was a point when I was working and going home for dinner, and then coming back and working. And Saturday was an eight to five day, and it was Sunday afternoon, and I'd leave Sunday evening, and I'd see my boss's car in the garage. I'd feel guilty, so not healthy. Right? It's not, yeah, not healthy. And uh, but yet, it's also true to say speed of the leader, speed of the team. So if you want to lead by example and you want to work hard and you, you would like for your employees to work hard, uh, then you have to also show that you're not bailing out at 449 every day and you're you're putting in a full day's work, full day's pay. So how do you balance those two things? Right. And I think it, it's it's one of those that that is uh, you know, the, the art part of leadership and not the science. And so what I would do is I would purposely walk walk through the office with briefcase in hand at five o'clock on days and let people see me, know, going home at five o'clock, it's fine to go home at five o'clock. Uh, there are certainly times when I would need to stay late or stay all night. And, and, uh, you know, depending on the, on what was going on. Um, and so that it wasn't like I needed to show that I was working hard, that people saw that. And, and, and the, the internal service level agreement is super important. You know, people would say, "Oh, I know you're, you know, because of your title or whatever. I know you're busy. I know you're busy." And, and I, I soon realized that some some employees didn't expect to even get a response to an email, or a phone call, or a meeting request, and it it blew me away. It's like you're you're giving leaders a pass. I and mean, we would never, in any organization I've worked for, would ever say that it was acceptable to not return a customer's call within a reasonable time period, 24 hours, whatever, or an email. Yet we're treating our internal customers, our employees that way. Right. So I think, again, part of the part of it is, is that being responsive to your employees. And so when they send you an email, you know, you respond to it and respond to it timely. If you're late, you say, I'm sorry, I'm late. You know, I've had to give this some thought or you respond to it and say, I'll get back to you. Right. Yeah, I don't have a chance right now to to review this. So those would be some of the things I think I've learned and picked up from the different leaders. Jeff, thanks a lot for taking time today. This was awesome. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun.
1: I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. everyone it's chris here again thank you so much for joining me on this journey if you enjoyed the show please subscribe to us on apple podcasts leave a five-star rating or write a quick review thanks again and i'll see you on the next episode chris powers is the founder and ceo of ford capital lp all opinions from chris and guests of the Ford podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ford capital lp This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.
0: The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.